Hello and welcome to the Frontier Strategy Group podcast series. FSG is the leading information services provider for emerging markets executives. We partner with business leaders at over 200 multinationals by providing them with research, analytical tools and data that helps power their emerging markets business strategies. We are joined today by FSG's new expert advisor, Frank Breken. Frank is the former executive vice president for the Africa region for Unilever and was responsible for the company's 2.5 billion euro operations up to very recently. My name is Anna Rosenberg. I head up FSG's Sub-Saharan Africa practice and I will be moderating today's conversation about Frank's experiences in doing business in the continent and how new trends developing in Sub-Saharan Africa are shaping company strategies. Frank, we are delighted to welcome you to our expert advisory network and to have you on the line today. Thank you, Anna. I'm very pleased to be invited to join you as an uh, expert advisor. And I hope it will not only allow me uh, uh, to share some of the insights I've acquired over my career, but also... Um, uh, no doubt I will learn from our interactions. That's great to hear, Frank. So let's jump right in. Frank, we have recently released our new regional overview on Sub-Saharan Africa. That's uh, a new report that looks at the main drivers of sustainable growth. And one of the drivers that we identified was private consumption. But more specifically, it was rapidly growing private consumption on the back of a vast and, and yeah, aggregate consumer base that is getting wealthier and is spending more money on better and more expensive products. So I'm curious to hear, given your experience from working at, at Unilever and also from what you've seen on the ground, how have consumer habits changed in the last couple of years? Yeah, now there's no doubt that uh, there is a growing consumer base in Africa. First of all, of course, there's the population growth of 3%. So Africa is one of the few places where you just have more mouths to feed and uh, more bodies to wash. So that that's already an economic factor in itself. Then there is, of course, the economic growth of 5% on average, which I think underestimates the growth that we have seen in fast-moving consumer goods and in, in other markets, simply because big chunks of the economy, they have just remained... Uh, underwater for official statistics. But within that growth, of course, there's a couple of, of uh, big dynamics. Um, one is that uh, everybody talks about the growth of the middle class by over 300 million, but um, it is, of course, worthwhile to remember that the African Development Bank, who came up with this number, defined middle class as of, uh, I believe, it's $2 a day. Uh, and if you if you cut out um, the, the, the chunk of uh, anybody who earns less than $4 a day, then that number basically halves. So the definition of middle, middle class is something to be careful with. If everybody above $4 a day, it's more like 150 million consumers. So, but that said, does that mean that the opportunity in Africa is less? No, because I believe that the big opportunity is really people moving from being too poor to be consumer into the consumer class. So basically people are slowly moving out of poverty. That's to us, certainly for companies like Unilever, uh, fast-moving consumer goods business, that, that to me is, is the, uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest opportunities at the bottom of the pyramid. 
Indeed, the additional one is uh, um, people going up the value chain, um, moving slowly up from from poor into low middle class or the floating middle class, as it's called, into the real middle class. And and there you see uh, categories such as in personal care, skin care, uh, personal grooming, etc., are growing rapidly on the on the on the uh, on the back of that. And then there's, of course, the last dynamic, and that is the emergence of a real upper class, uh, people who can participate in the global luxury lifestyle. And, and you see that in the growth of champagne by over 20% a year, and, and, and the Diage doing uh, swift business in, uh, with cognacs and, and premium uh, whiskies, etc. Now, what does all that mean in terms of consumer habits? Uh, obviously, um, what we see as a consumer who is confronted with more choice, um, um, more competition and, and is better informed and as a result of that uh, he has become more savvy so for the Unilever, the Procter and Gamble and the Nestle's of this world the, the, the days that, that good enough products were enough to, to achieve dominant leading if not dominant market share these days are gone um, companies now have to be much more uh, focused and aware about their brand equities, about their price positioning, about their product qualities. And, and companies who do not respond to this higher level of expectation, they will not do well in Africa in the future. And, and how are they actually doing that? How are they reacting to these changing consumption patterns? There's no mystery in it. It's, um, what, what, it what it basically means is that Africa has to stop being the exception. How often have we heard, um, uh, even without really thinking, people saying, you know, um, for Africa, basically meaning for Africa this is good enough. And indeed when you would be walking through Africa five years ago and even today, what you would see is product qualities that would just not do anywhere else but Africa. Um, it's only a couple of years ago that uh, we were confronted with uh, detergent sachets, sachets leaking in double digit, double digit percentage of detergent sachets leaking or margarine uh, showing mold uh, after a couple of weeks open. These are things which are unacceptable anywhere else in the world. The same with mobile phone providers. The quality of the coverage was unacceptable. Now, what you see now is, of course, that companies are really starting to take this more savvy and, and, and uh, the fact that the consumer has more choice seriously. So what you see is um, better marketing campaigns, stronger brand positioning, um, better product quality, better availability, um, and more consistent pricing. So, so that's what I mean with we have to get away from the Africa exception and starting to do things as well as we do them in other parts in the world. Yeah, this is uh, fascinating. It certainly is something that I think a lot of our clients are seeing on the ground as well. So let's talk a little bit about adapting your products to the realities of the market. You at Unilever invested a lot to do that. And um, you have, for example, focused on changing the package size to allow low-income consumer purchase smaller units. But adapting your product portfolio is obviously a very cost-intensive process. So how have you at Unilever made the case to highlight that the opportunity in Sub-Saharan Africa really merits the extra costs of adapting products to market realities? Yeah. Now, of course, in general, what we will see is that the kind of investors that will, uh, will be successful in Africa is, is going to change from the 
opportunistic traders, importers to um, to to people who really take a long-term view. I think anybody with a short-term view will get squeezed because the investments you refer to are indeed only justifiable if you take a long-term perspective. And these these investments are 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 necessary, are critical unless you want to see your consumer walking out to the competition. So it's it's not a matter when if a company like Unilever invests in innovation in better product quality, it's it's not a matter of choice. It's a matter of necessity. Uh, you do lose market share if you don't market share if you don't if you are not prepared to invest in behind innovation. So the number one justification is um, the opportunity cost of not doing it, namely rapidly declining share. Another important and critical argument for, for driving these investment decisions is, um, um, is, is to define the, the cake, actually. Now, you can define the cake on the basis of a country, or you can define it on the basis of a region or a number of countries. So what, what we need to do in order to justify these investments uh, in innovation, but also in manufacturing, maybe we'll talk about that later, is to take uh, the perspective that goes well beyond the countries, um, because that, that will often be necessary to justify that. And one, one last point, I think it's often forgotten that, um, these, that there is tremendous scope for adaptation and innovation, which actually reduces costs. Don't forget that in Africa, a lot of the manufacturing base and a lot of the product formulations and specifications are, are old age. I mean, the packaging specifications are over-specified. Uh, formulations of washing powders are over-specified. Why? Because Africa in many ways has missed out on the innovations that have produced actual cost savings in many of the product categories in other parts of the world. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. Um, uh, Frank, let's let's stick to this topic a little bit and dive deeper in the issue of industrialization that you were mentioned. The lack of industrialization is often highlighted as one of the major drawbacks of growth in sub-Saharan Africa as uh, typically a large manufacturing industry is needed to absorb the large unskilled workforce. So since we here at FSG track the markets um, constantly, we have seen that a lot of companies are currently setting up factories across the continent. And Unilever has done that. And what was the motivation behind that? You've, you've spoken about this a little bit. But would you say that the continent is a good place to set up local manufacturing? Now, um, of course, most of this investment is driven by capacity requirements. Uh, you can't keep on growing uh, double-digit and not running out of capacity. So by necessity, you will have to add capacity and factories into, uh, into, into the, on the African uh, continent. Part of these investments, by the way, is also catching up on years of underinvestment. Many companies still are running manufacturing facilities which are really run out of gas and, and needs, uh, needs replacement. Um, I also refer to what I said earlier, that... Um, this consumer trend of being more demanding needs to be met by somebody, and that in many cases requires investments, whether it is in factories or in, in more coverage for mobile phone providers. So, so more than a choice, again, I come to the point of, of, uh, of necessity. Um, now, uh, let me add one perspective on this to the question, would you say that the continent is a good place to set up local manufacturing? 
I would not necessarily say it is a good place to set up manufacturing for many reasons, uh, for many different reasons, depending on the country you talk about. But it is a necessary uh, place to set up local manufacturing. Because in a place like Africa, which is so big, three times the size of China, with import logistics which are complicated, in many categories you will find that it will be impossible to compete without local manufacturing. And that is, I think, what you will see happening in virtually all categories. Um, a strong first mover advantage for, the, for he who has the guts to go onshore, and then the necessity for everybody else to follow. That is, I think, what you currently see happening in many industries. Yes, absolutely. That's certainly something that we're, we're seeing also specifically in countries such as Ethiopia and Kenya, where we see a lot of local manufacturing being, being set up. Let's speak a little bit about um, the challenge of um, the big data gap and information gap. Yeah, it's funny. With Africa, I like to say that the data that we have are irrelevant and the ones that we need, we don't have. What do I mean with the first one is that, um, and it's something that we actually should say always before at the start of talking about Africa, is that talking about Africa is, of course, in some ways quite illusionary. As I said, the continent three times the the size of China, with a diversity which is at least as big as uh, talking about Europe, including, including Eastern Europe and Russia. So, so we, we often forget that this diversity makes it very, very difficult to, to make any statement about Africa in general. Um, we often look at data and quote data um, out of studies, whether it's the McKinsey study or other studies, forgetting, and you can read that in the footnotes, that many of these studies are actually an aggregate of five countries. And five countries who are as diverse as including Egypt, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, and Senegal. So, so the data that we have, I, I tend to treat them with a pinch of salt. And one of the things that we should do when it comes to information and data is actually slowly walking away from the tendency to talk about Africa and much more focusing in to talk about East Africa, to talk about Nigeria, etc. Now, that said, there is indeed a lack of data. Now, having spent quite some time in emerging, fast-growing emerging markets, whether it's China or Africa, the good thing is that very often detail doesn't really matter. The uh, dynamics and the numbers are big enough um, to believe in. Whether I, I, I don't lose sleep over uh, knowing whether uh, the category I operate in grows with uh, 7% or with 9%. It grows disproportionately. It grows well ahead of the rest of the world. So in terms of dynamics, I think that we have sufficient data to work with. But one of the fascinating things around data is how little companies do with the data they actually have so when I look at our own experience at Unilever, it was fascinating to see how we did not use uh, our own sales data. We didn't really use them to understand regional differences or what were the main drivers behind the growth or margin increase or margin erosion. And there's so much information that is actually locked in and hidden into your own database if you only care to really capture it well and analyze it well. So, so my suggestion to companies would be, see what data you find within your own control. And if you're not yet unsure, 
is there any partners that are relevant to you and who can provide you with data, whether it's retailers or distributors, and, and work from these micro data to make macro assumptions? We, we have found that to be extremely useful in Unilever. That's fascinating, and that's certainly great advice. Speaking about data here, what, what, when we look at the data, actually, in terms of FDI, what we see is a lot of FDI going into the continent right now. Approximately 50 billion are estimated until the end of the year in the overall continent, including North Africa. And a lot of that FDI is coming from the BRICS economies. So we're also seeing a lot of new entrants coming in, which obviously means growing competition. How can multinationals face competition from new players they are not familiar with, either from emerging markets or even local smaller competitors? Yeah, I personally, I, I still think that the, the real dynamic, uh, maybe not short term, but certainly medium to long term, is that also in Africa, the global players will come out on top. They will start moving in aggressively And they will start um, um, consolidating the market. Now, it's true that in the, in the near future, and what we've seen in the past couple of years, is local players growing fast, moving in, but it, they're moving into a space that the global multinationals have left. They have left that space out of a, a degree, sometimes out of arrogance, um, sitting, uh, sitting on market shares from the past, that they did not care to defend properly and losing market share rapidly to local players who, who really started taking the consumer seriously. So, so laziness, I would say. It's, it's also a matter of global multinationals only slowing growing up to the fact that to think about Africa as one country is, is pretty stupid. And not surprisingly that if you have in Nigeria a company who really talks to Nigerians and in Kenya to Kenyans that these companies are the better marketeers and therefore will win. But I have no doubt that the global players actually will get into the game. And just I've seen in Central and Eastern Europe and in other emerging markets that they will, that they will start coming on top also in Africa. So how did you and your role at Unilever deal with competition? I think I forced, forced ourselves, first of all, to be honest with ourselves and to say, vis-a-vis -vis the African consumer, are we doing a lousy job, yes or not? And we were. As I said, if, if, if you don't have the minimum condition, the minimum housekeeping in terms of product quality, in terms of the right price setting, in terms of availability, if you haven't really fulfilled these minimum conditions, then you, you, you cannot be surprised about not capturing the Africa opportunity as you should. So, so the main driver for us, for, I, I say us, for Unilever, but I think it's true for every company, the main driver is really about taking the African consumer seriously. And this is not just a statement. This is, this is a mindset. And it is pervasive and it remains pervasive in the head of many investors and many, and many um, um, uh, competitors that the African consumer is not yet taken seriously enough. The moment you take him or her serious in terms of product offering, then you are competitive just as you can be in any other market. 
Frank, you've worked a lot in frontier markets outside of Africa, as you mentioned also previously, um, including China, Colombia, Poland and Russia. How transferable were your experiences from these markets for the overall Africa strategy that you implemented at Unilever? I think that what, what you learn from operating in frontier markets is that execution is strategy. Um, and that means that the basic systems capabilities, they need to be in place. People, organization, IT, logistics, with, with that, that the basic stuff, what I call system capability. And what I find common across these, uh, all these markets is that, uh, in general, companies um, tend to hugely underestimate what it takes to put that infrastructure in place. Now, the bottlenecks, the specific bottlenecks can be somewhat different from one place to another. In, in Africa, you could say the real bottleneck is overall organizational capability and, and the physical infrastructure. In, in China, it's not so much the physical infrastructure. Uh, there, it was more about marketing and sales capability specifically. Um, and Colombia and the other markets had their own systems uh, challenges. So what I've, what I've learned in all these ventures and in all these postings is that uh, companies, um, um, head office or offshore placed people are often deviled by the strength of their brand, uh, by the scale of their past successes, and they say, of course we can make this happen in Africa. And yes, they can. But what it takes to do that will take considerable more than they think because that system capability, they take it for granted, but you can't do that in a market, in, in emerging markets. So, so it is much more about how will we do this than what should we be doing this? How will we do this? And, and like nowhere else in Africa, this is very much about sweat and tears on the ground. Speaking about uh, different countries and, and markets, a lot of our clients today focus on the big ones, obviously South Africa, Nigeria and Kenya. What, in your opinion, are the next big frontier markets in Sub-Saharan Africa everyone will be talking about in the next couple of years? Uh, no doubt that uh, I think Ethiopia is on everybody's radar screen. 19 million people, uh, what is it, I think a 40 billion economy, a consistently growing, a dramatic improvement in world development indicates. So, so Ethiopia will be there. Uh, if it isn't already, it will be there. Uh, and by definition, when you talk about uh, uh, big markets and you also think about the DRC, 70 million consumers, but obviously that will be a stretch. I think the challenges in the DRC are phenomenal and the economy remains fairly small. So, and beyond that, you, of course, you, you immediately face up to the challenge that these are relatively small markets. Yes, populations of 30 million, 40 million, but then quickly you get into 20 million. Um, and if you then look at the specific market sizes for your categories, then it becomes pretty small. But I think what the trick is, is to look beyond countries, because often they are an accident of history, like how the colonizers uh, cut up the pie. But if you really look at relevant consumer blocks like French West Africa or East Africa, you see quite vast consumer opportunities. French West Africa is over 100 million consumers. Um, East Africa community, which is a true economic block uh, now, is over 150 million consumers with a GDP of over 200 billion. So, so 
in that sense, you can see uh, two or three big opportunities merging: French West Africa, East uh, East Africa com- community, and in the and the North Africa block um, that certainly will come on on everybody's radar screen. So, what is your advice to companies that are now entering or expanding in Sub-Saharan Africa? Ah, <laughs> what is my advice? Um, you know, I certainly don't want to sound like. Uh, an expert. Um, uh, I read somewhere the definition of an expert is he who is trained not to make small mistakes, only to make really big ones. Um, so don't qualify me as an expert. But one one thing I would certainly say is be prepared. Um, Africa today is like China 10 years ago. Um, and I can see some of the companies, I, I was amazed about it when I was in China, and now again I'm a little bit surprised about some companies forgetting about a very simple logic. And the logic is that if there is something that everybody wants, it is by definition something that will be difficult to get. And so so it, if, the, if, if you are after something nobody wants, then you probably can get it easier. But Africa certainly is something that everybody wants, so it will be difficult to get. No doubt that the opportunity is big. But capturing it will be increasingly challenging because of the competitive dynamics. You are not the only one who has suddenly discovered that Africa is the next quote uh, engine. Um, on top of that, in Africa, you have a very complex overall economic context. On top of that, in Africa, you have often a knowledge and expertise base, which is very slim, very tiny. You will ask around in head offices, and many people will not know really the difference between West and East Africa. And, and, and in their minds, really look at Africa as one country, which, as we know, is, is not really clever. So be prepared. Uh, be prepared for a an, an, an context that is more competitive and where the demand for operational excellence will be much higher than you can imagine. So I think, in principle, that means that the discussion on Africa now should shift dramatically uh, from the what to the how, and not about is there an opportunity or not, but in the company, I think the discussion now should be fully, what are we going to do, how are we going to capture it? Frank, one common denominator for success in the continent seems to be that companies that are really doing well typically put a great emphasis on adding value to the communities they're doing business in. How can multinationals contribute to the economic development of Sub-Saharan Africa and be profitable at the same time? Yeah, now, the best way to contribute is to be successful. Successful companies create employment, they train, they pay taxes, uh, and very importantly, they attract other successful companies. And in the past, there was almost like a little bit of a, a hesitation about being a successful company and shouting about it. I think most of Africa now has overcome their... Um, their dislike of capitalism or companies, etc. I think it's it's being embraced. So companies should be successful and should be, I think, clear and and outspoken about it. But of course, it's absolutely true that you have to go beyond that. It's true that a strong connection with the community that will be ultimately the best protection against the uncertainties that come from political instability, etc. Uh, ultimately, there's no better custodian of your assets than the community in which they are located if you take them as part of your success. And, 
And we have seen that, for example, in Kenya with the post-elections violence, not at the last, but the previous elections, how, how our own employees have been a part of, of really safeguarding our, our tier state assets, for example. So, so it is very important, more than anywhere else, to, um, to embrace that community in which you operate. Thank you, Frank, for this fascinating conversation. We unfortunately have to come to a close now. But as a reminder to our clients, you can speak with Frank simply by reaching out via your account manager. This concludes our podcast. Until next time, we wish you great outperformance in your emerging markets.